The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here, author of the Cannabis Business Book. And you're listening to the Cannabis Business Coach Podcast, where I chat with and coach the highest performing entrepreneurs in the cannabis industry. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z here. And on today's episode of the Cannabis Business Coach Podcast, I have a really, really special guest here, and that's Andrew D'Angelo, who, you know, I think it's fair to say is, you know, there's OGs and then there's like certified super OGs or, or like some other category beyond OG. And I, I feel like it's safe to say that Andrew fits into that category, whether we look at his work in activism or with Harborside for many, many years or more recently with the Last Prisoner Project. This man has done so many different things in this industry that's really quite remarkable. So I'm super excited. This is actually my first time meeting Andrew, and I'm thrilled for the opportunity. So Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show. And if you don't mind, can you give a little more in-depth uh, background and intro to the folks who might be tuning in today? Of course, Mike. Thank you for having me. Fantastic to be here. Well, your listeners may or may not know, but my older brother is Steve D'Angelo. So Steve is the person that sort of got me into cannabis way, way long time ago um, when we were when I was a teenager and he was Steve's nine years older than me. So he was well into his 20s when I when he first turned me on to, to cannabis and I immediately knew I needed to sell cannabis. <laughs> Uh, this was the 1980s, so it was long before any even hint or whisper of legalization was happening. And I knew I needed to sell cannabis only because the plant healed me as a teenager. I was in a lot of physical pain. I was an athlete. I had an injury. I was in a lot of emotional pain because... It was a little bit delusional, but I had a dream of being a professional athlete. And when I got hurt, that that dream was over. And, you know, when you're in high school and you're dreaming big dreams, those first that first big dream you ever have in your life, you get depressed when you know that it's done. You know that it's over. Every every leader has many events like that in their career. And that, that was my first one where I was tried to be an athlete and I couldn't, and I was just miserable. And my brother saw this pain I was in. We were having dinner at my mom's house. He handed me a joint and it wasn't the first time he handed me a joint, <laughs> but I was an athlete, right? So I said, no. And this particular time, I, a little voice in my head said, you need to, you need to hit that joint. And so I did. And it immediately had a positive impact on not just my physical comfort level, but also my emotional state. And I think it, it, it couldn't have been more than a day or two later, I went to my brother's house and got my first quarter pound of weed and started selling to my friends in, in high school. And that's how the cannabis journey uh, started off for me. Now, you couldn't go 
study how to be a cannabis person in those days <laughs> like you can now now you can go to green flower media and you can go to a whole bunch of universities and you can go to places and they'll teach you you have to pay them but they'll teach you um in those days you couldn't um so i sold weed out of the dorms of my college and i studied acting and theater that that was my second dream <laughs> after being an athlete and then after i was done with my studies and I bankrupted myself as an actor. <laughs> um, my brother was there to rescue me and I, I moved back home and started working with him on, on both underground cannabis dealing and also we had a hemp clothing company. In fact, the shirt I'm wearing today is made out of hemp. Um, we had a hemp clothing company in the early 90s called Ecolution that lasted all through the 90s. And those two businesses kept us really, really busy. And that that's Ecolution was our first legal cannabis business. And we learned so much about bringing cannabis out of the shadows and into the light with that. And then unfortunately, a couple of years after that business ended, my brother suffered a terrible, devastating bust on the East Coast while I was in California studying. I went back to school to try to revive my creative career right when he got busted. So that was, a, you know, any, any of your listeners who've been busted or know people have been busted know how devastating that is. And our parents were already in their late sixties when that happened, early seventies. And it was really hard on them too. So I had to stop <laughs> selling weed for a few years um and we had to get my brother through his legal case and then um I, I i finally convinced everybody to come out to california and that and shortly thereafter my brother really led the charge on getting one of the first retail cannabis licenses ever in the world by the city of oakland here in oakland where i am today and that's when we started harborside and then i got to sort of managed the day-to-day -day of the harborside dispensaries and later on supply chain when we brought on a farm and manufacturing and my brother did all the strategic decision making all the outward facing all the media all the storytelling uh, and he became quite famous <laughs> um, as a result of that and we really pioneered something at harborside that any any dispensary you go into just about anywhere in the world today there's a little bit of harborside in that, um, in the way it looks, in the way it feels, in the way it's laid out, in the way people present products. Th these were all areas my brother and I, and our team, of course, um, pioneered. And, and, and then I left Harborside a couple of years ago, and, and now um, I make my living as a cannabis consultant, and I help other entrepreneurs build their cannabis businesses all throughout the country, and I hope soon the world. Amazing. Amazing. And I'll, I'll just do a quick shout out to Steve, because I, I remember many years ago now, which is kind of crazy to think, but I want to say it was 2015 when uh, he came to New York and spoke at one of my events. He was promoting the Cannabis Manifesto, which if you haven't read that book, go on Amazon right now and get yourself a copy if you're a cannabis person. And even if you're not a cannabis person yet, you need to read this book and you'll surely be on your way to being a cannabis person. And I, I actually am 
using his book right now as a textbook in a college course that I'm teaching here in Brooklyn. That's an intro to cannabis class. And I said, you know, this is the book that you all need to read. And, um, you know, I remember when, when he came to my event, you know, it was back in 2015 here in New York, we were not so far along in the cannabis legalization uh, movement. And so it was like one of these moments for me where I was like, oh shit, like if Steve D'Angelo is going to come speak at my event, like I might be onto something here. Like this might not be so crazy what I'm doing. But um, anyway, I, I, I also do want to say that I think it's super cool that you guys are brothers in this thing together. I'm a younger brother myself, and I often get teased by my my family that when I was a kid, all I wanted to do was be like my older brother. And it's funny because I didn't know it when I was when I was younger, but he was a big stoner before I had, I had ever touched the plants, before I had ever known anything about it. And then what's funny and kind of sad, you know, so I, I, I hope I hope, Andrew, this will make you appreciate a little more um, the, the beautiful situation you're in with, with, with your brother. My brother quit smoking pot around the time that I picked it up. And so he and I were both big stoners, but at separate times with minimal overlap. And I often wonder, I wonder if, if he was still a stoner, maybe we would do some cool stuff together. So, you know, but alas, anyway, that's, that's just a, a little tangent, but I, I but you're, you're, you're so right. I mean, my brother and I are blessed to have that connection and, and, and gift together. And, and there are so many families that don't, and, and there's very good reasons why we have that together. You know, every family has their own story. Ours is, is particularly unique that, that made that happen. But, but, you know, I feel for you. It's, it's a bummer. I'm sure you'd love to smoke a joint with your brother. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm sure that that causes you a little bit of, you know, sadness sometimes. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I'm hoping I could twist his arm. But, you know, he's like, he's, we, we've gone on different paths, but we're, we're still close and it's all good. But yeah, I, I, I do sometimes imagine. Plus, you know, I will say this, um, to make it a little more relevant for, for some of the listeners instead of a, a Mike Z pity party, which certainly is not, not my intention here. Um, you know, it's hard to find people you trust in this industry. And I feel like one thing about my brother is I trust him. He's my brother. It's very simple uh, in that regard. So I think it's, you know, the fact that you have two super experienced people in one family and you could count on each other, you can trust on each other. It's totally not insignificant. Anyway, I, I, I do want to shift gears, Andrew, and ask you, you know, and I'll preface this with a lot of people ask me, how do I get into the industry? How do I get a job in the industry? How do I get started? And so, you know, I always tell them, bring whatever skills you have into this industry, someone's going to need them. And so you have a background as an actor. And I actually happen to think that and, and maybe this is like an uncommon belief, I don't know. But I actually happen to think that having skills as an actor or, or whatever that skill set, that craft is one of the most universally useful and underrated skills that you could have in business. And I know for most people, that seems like 
like, uh, you know, wouldn't accounting probably be like higher on that list or something? But I, I actually happen to think that the whole world is a stage. And if you know how to be a person of action and be an actor and and empathize and all that stuff, and, and it, particularly in cannabis, where I, I'm a big believer that before you get into the business, you have to be an activist first. You know, there's that, there, that root of act. And so I want to hear from you kind of, how do those skills and that background and experience serve you in business? And, and how have you been able to apply those skills in, in, in entrepreneurship? Well, it's a really great question. And you're right. Most people don't think of studying acting as good preparation for business. When you're, when you're studying acting, and I, I, I studied not only in undergrad, I, I actually went to acting school after undergrad. And, and, and they always tell you every single day you hear it. If you can do anything else in life besides be an actor, go do that. Um, and because it's a very hard life. Um, um, being an actor is, a, unless you're one of the 1% of 1% that becomes a movie star, and you know, becoming super famous is really destructive on human beings too. <laughs> um, but um, but it's, a, it's nice to be able to work and it's nice to be able to make good money as an actor but very few actors get to do that. Most actors you've never heard of. Most actors you go see on TV or in TV series or in the theater, you don't know who they are. And nor do you care. What you care about is the story that they've told. So it took me a long time to understand how my skills as an actor might help me in business. I, it was intuitive at first because I was selling weed underground. I was doing all my business underground. And I was trying to be an actor, which is a much different type of business. It's, it's more of a gig economy. Um, it's not so much you're building a business with clients and customers and that sort of thing. And so intuitively, I was establishing trust with people that I was doing business with in the underground market. That's really important. That's one of the things um, that actors, when you're an actor, the only thing you have is your voice, your body, and your emotions. And you train and train and train to make sure those three things are in really good shape. And that means you're taking singing classes and ballet classes, but you're also doing all this internal emotional work. And these are the tools that by which actors do their career with. So in business, as you mentioned, Mike, Business is a kind of a stage of its own. And there are protagonists and antagonists, and there are there's a lot of actors at the audition. It's very competitive. Um, and, and, and it's particularly in cannabis, we're talking about something that grows out of the ground, that gets made into things. It's a very complex process. It's not like software where you make it once and 10 billion people can download it at once. And so it really requires a lot of people, people skills. You have a lot of people working in cannabis companies, whether it's a farm, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's retail, you have a lot of people and you have to manage those people. And one of the things actors hate is being commanded and controlled by directors and producers. <laughs> so I hated that as an actor, especially when the director was wrong. But as a leader, 
when you're leading people and cannabis businesses, I don't like to command and control people either. It, it goes all the way back to that distaste I have as an, as an actor. What I want to do is I want to establish trust with people. I want them to make the decisions, not me. I want to give them the tools to make good decisions, the training. It's like being a gardener instead of a general. And you could create the conditions in the garden by which the garden can grow. You don't tell the rose bush, you better grow right now, I command you. <laughs> no, you have to water it and fertilize it and take care of it. You have to support it. And I approached, once we opened Harborside and I was like, whoa, I got to learn all these new things because I'm not in the underground market anymore. And I got to like write a job description, do a performance review. And I have to file paperwork with the city and the state and I have to get a license. And I have all this compliance and wow, I have to deal with a whole bunch of other people now too. And I have to lead them or educate them. And all those skills I learned as an actor, that's when the aha moment happened for me. And I'm like, okay, I'm so glad I went to acting school. Because when we first opened up Harborside, I actually started taking business school classes um, at uh, UC Berkeley Extension because I'm like, I didn't go to business school. I'm over my head. I'm overwhelmed. What am I doing? <laughs> and then I, I, I took a few classes and we started just running the business. And I started to it started to dawn on me that my skills as an actor and building trust with people and managing them in a supportive way is the school I needed to go to. And everything that I could take in business school, I can basically learn by running the business. I can basically learn by running the business because by Harborside was a very big company very quickly. So you just learn. And, and so I'm, I'm now very grateful that I went, I spent all that money and time in acting, even though I don't act, you know, I'm more of a personality now than I am an actor, but the skills I use every single day. And I'm, I'm <laughs> in a strange way, I'm proud of myself for, for learning how to be an actor because it's, it's paid a lot of dividends for me as a leader in cannabis. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. So I, I just want to reflect a few things that I heard, which one is this leadership style of really facilitating and nurturing and cultivating an environment in which others can thrive and take on responsibility and, and make decisions and have ownership and power and ultimately become leaders which I, I think the hallmark of great leadership is to create other leaders. And so I, I, I'm definitely hearing that from you, which I love. And then the other thing that I'm hearing is, and, and again, I, I love this as well because it's in line with my philosophy, which is, look, at the end of the day in business or in anything else, it comes down to people and it comes down to you know, anything that you want to accomplish, you need people, whether it's your partners or customers or support or staff or whatever, there's human beings at the end of that equation. And so if you lack the emotional intelligence or 
the basic human decency of empathy, compassion, understanding, etc., you're going to have a hard time actually leading and actually having someone follow your lead or, or work with you or support you or collaborate or whatever, if you can't establish that human connection. And I think that it's especially true in cannabis, where so many people are, uh, how should I say, a little less traditional than maybe you would find in other industries. And also where for a lot of people, this is much more than just about dollars and cents, and there's a much greater purpose and mission. And, you know, if you're not able to connect with people on that, I think it's very hard to succeed in this industry. And then the, the last thing I, I did want to point out is I, I think one similarity between cannabis entrepreneurship, at least, and acting is that it may seem glamorous to the outside perspective, to the dreamer. However, the reality is it, it, it's a hard, it's a hard life and only, only a select few really will become that cannabis zillionaire or whatever and be the, you know, on the cover of whatever magazine and all that. Um, and for, and even for those folks, it's a grind to get there. So I, I just wanted to touch on that, but. No, you're so right. You're so right. That last point is, is really well taken. And I hope everyone heard that who's listening today. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So Andrew, I want to ask you, since I know you're involved in a lot of projects outside of not only consulting, but also Glass Prisoner Project, I'm just curious of all the things you work on today, what's most exciting for you or what's, what are you most excited about right now in the cannabis world, even if it's something that you're not working on? That's a great, great question. Well, I think social justice and social equity are two areas of tremendous need. And I, that's one, why we started Last Prisoner Project. We also saw a lot of money being made in the cannabis industry by people, you know, growing, transporting, selling, manufacturing cannabis, and a whole bunch of people in prison for doing the exact same thing. Most of those people in prison are black and brown people, and most of the people selling it legally and making, as you said, quite a bit of money are, are not black and brown people. So we have to balance the scales here. So, and I like doing that kind of work. It, it's exciting to me to sort of swim against the dominant stream and, and get all the other fish to turn around and swim in the same direction is, is exciting to me. So I think those are, and, and, and Last Prisoner Project is the main area I, I do that work in. I do support social equity as much as I can. I, I donate my time to social equity clients and give them great discounts and, and do my best to empower that community but last prisoner project is where i spend most of my time in that particular bucket i think the other thing that is exciting in the industry right now <clears throat> that is just starting but that is in industrial hemp and the potential for industrial hemp which i think is much greater than quote unquote psychoactive cannabis 
because basically everything in your house, everything in my house, everything we wear, everything we eat, you know, everything we build out of can be made out of hemp. Everything, all the fuel we put in our car, uh, it, it can all be made out of hemp or other plants. And that is going to be a very exciting area to work in, whether it's cannabis hemp or whether it's some other plant that's very beneficial to humanity right now with respect to sustainability. So that's not an area I'm, I'm working a lot in. I do write about that in my columns with Playboy and Forbes, and I do celebrate that as much as I can and, and, and celebrate other people like my friend Doug Fine, the hemp author and um, an and activist and, and storyteller. And, and other people in the hemp, the hemp Industry Association and, and, and any number of other heroes in the sustainability movement. And sometimes those are small regenerative farmers like Bird Valley Organics out here or Swami with Swami Select out here. They, they have small little regenerative farms. And you go to these farms and they're trying to scale it up. Swami's trying to get bigger. You know, Manny down there, Bird Valley Organics is trying to get bigger. And people are trying to figure out, well, how can we scale up something regenerative uh, and make it big, you know, and so that it can not only grow hemp and cannabis that way, but we can also grow corn that way. You know, there's 46 million acres of corn planted last year and only half a million acres of hemp. And we need to reverse that. <laughs> Um, or at least, you know, again, it's about balance. It's about homeostasis in all uh, our, our world, our environment, our ecology right now. So I think those are super exciting areas. And then just selfishly, the creative projects I work on, that's sort of my third bucket. There's consulting, social justice, and, and creativity. I'm still creative. I, I don't act anymore, but I write and I I. I have lots of different creative projects in the pipeline. They, 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 those are always very exciting to me, some of which I'm doing with my brother and other creative people. And I, I just have a blast working on those. I don't get to spend as much time working on those projects as, as most creatives don't, who have to also make a living um, with something other than their creativity. Um, but I, I, I really enjoy that. And, and I bring that creativity to, to all my work, really, um, in addition to my, my more transactional work, perhaps, is very creative approach. And I always try to find something that will differentiate my clients from everybody else. And, and that's really an exercise in creativity and, and, and research and really looking at the market and looking at the com competition and going, you know what? <laughs> I think we can take dead aim and attack on, you know, this particular trend or big player or something like that that's happening with one of my clients. So, so leveraging creativity in all of these areas I've just mentioned is, is, is probably the most exciting part of my job. It's hard for me to pick one project um, as more exciting than the others, but, but I think that the way our industry is moving towards social justice and social equity, I hope that will continue to happen. I hope it doesn't get railroaded. And uh, the trends to sustainability, those are the three areas I think are the most exciting right now in, in cannabis. Awesome. And 
I, I agree with you. I'm always fascinated by industrial hemp innovation, especially as it relates to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. I think it's it's remarkable how much potential there is with industrial hemp to replace so many less eco-friendly status quo businesses and processes and and how early we are in adoption and that whole thing. And it's it's amazing to think about, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, <clears throat> just how much we can be integrating hemp into the supply chain of just about everything. And, you know, I look forward to a day where one day people are like, oh, wow, like we were really stupid to not be doing all this hemp stuff. Can you imagine those those idiots 20, 30 years ago that like were using plastics and like, you know, that's exactly whatever. what the history is going to be written about our age. The petroleum age is going to be the idiotic age that mm. almost brought humanity to the brink or the idiotic age that did bring humanity to the brink. Um, so, no, I think you're absolutely right. It's people are going to look back and just say, what were these people thinking? And, and it's going to be, you know, it, the, the, it's going to be greed. Mm. Greed is yep. going to be the root cause. It's kind of like Marie Antoinette and it goes all the way back uh, a long time, you know, where whether it's institutions like slavery or whether it's um, imperialism, all of these things driven by greed. So. Wow, I, 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 I <laughs> hopefully all this plant medicine that we're getting out into the world will sort of get people realigned to other things that are as much, if not more important than the motivation of self-interest. I sure hope so. I hope so too. And hopefully someone listening to this uh, podcast or watching this will will feel inspired to answer the call and be part of the, the solution with us. I, I do want to touch on one thing you mentioned just briefly about creativity, because I think it's one of the one of these things that's often overlooked where people have come to me and asked, Mike Z, how do I succeed in this industry? How do I build a business that endures and lasts and blah, blah, blah. And, and I give them the not so satisfying answer that you actually have to innovate and you actually have to be creative and do something better or smarter or more efficient than what else is out there. Because I, I don't know if this has been your experience as well, Andrew, where so many people want to get involved and just kind of copy what they see other folks doing. And then they're like surprised that, you know, oh, like this, no one cares, <laughs> you know? Um, so I just wanted to iterate that, reiterate rather that this is a cutting edge, innovative industry that moves really quickly. And to actually be an innovator and be a leader in the space, you have to do something innovative. You can't just reinvent the wheel and copy what other folks are doing because things change. So I, I don't know if you have anything you want to add on that or. or well, I, the only thing I would add is failure happens. So when you're an innovator and a leader and you're taking risks and you're learning new things and you're trying to make your mark, sometimes you're going to fail and you're going to go bankrupt or lose all your money or lose your company. 
And that is where you need to really be the most aware and pay the most attention because that's where we learn and that's where we grow the most. We don't, the only thing you learn how to do when you succeed is how to remodel your house. <laughs> but when you fail or when you have a failure, maybe the whole thing doesn't fall apart, but you make a bad decision. You can't be in this without making some bad decisions, without experiencing some failure. And that that's if you, and it's hard, it's painful. I've gone through it so many times. I, I lost my company um, in, in many respects. So I know exactly how it feels, but th th it's also the opportunity of a lifetime to pivot out of that and to learn, be stronger, faster, better than you've ever been before. And so that was the only thing I would add is, is, is you might fail and that's okay. You pick yourself up and you go at it again. Absolutely. I'm so grateful that you brought that up and I'm going to make my shameless plug for the cannabis business book where I interviewed 50 industry leaders for their advice on how to succeed in weed, including your brother, Steve, who was interviewed and and actually says something very similar where he said, as a pioneer, I expect to fail a bunch of times. And I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said something to the effect of, if I'm not failing regularly, that means I'm not taking big enough risks. And that if I'm not taking big risks, then I'm not actually being creative and innovating. So I, I love that you brought that up. And and I, I have a whole chapter in the book of how to fail correctly and how not to fail. And I think one of the biggest things is not taking it personally and, and appreciating that it's a part of the process. Rejection happens, mistakes happen. And even if you do everything perfectly and, and you do everything right, sometimes, you know, there's a pandemic or some, <laughs> some external force just, you know, makes the, the best laid plans and intentions into a quote unquote failure. Um, but the, in fact, the only failure is actually to either not learn from the experience. And as you said, pick yourself up and come back stronger and better, or to, you know, what, what I think is even more uh, dangerous per perhaps is to make the mistake of believing that when you fail or when you have a setback that I, I think some entrepreneurs fall into the, the mistake of believing I am a failure and allowing a failure to define them. And that can lead into a, a whole slew of, of uh, problems and challenges and setbacks and, you know, health, mental health issues, which, you know, Cannabis entrepreneurship will certainly test your mental health in a variety of ways, but um, yeah, so I, I appreciate that answer and, and that, that perspective of you have to fail. It's a part of the, the process and, you know, don't worry about it so much. I, I think that's, you know, and I, I imagine that that's something that as a creative in the acting craft is something you, you learn to live with as, you know, you're not going to get it. No one gets every audition or every gig they go out for. And so it's just a part of the process. 
That's right. It's very hard not to take it personally, particularly in business. If you've lost some money from investors or whatever it might be, it's really hard because they're saying it's your fault. It's your fault. You're a failure. You're a failure. I'm not a failure. I'm the rich guy. I gave you money. What are you doing? Um, and so it's very hard not to internalize that. And as you mentioned, sometimes it's just bad timing. You know, Harborside went public at the exact wrong time. The exact wrong time. The entire market crashed 90%. There was no way we could have not crashed with it. Right. The whole thing did. And so it was just, it was the exact wrong time to go public. And it was just bad timing, right? And we, it's not that we made really terrible, crappy decisions. It's not that we did anything, quote unquote, terribly wrong. But we just, bad timing, bad luck. It happens. And of course, folks that floated that offering on the public markets were not happy. <laughs> Um, and, you know, they asserted their rights and now they're running the company. The stock is still in the toilet <laughs> like everybody's is right now. Um, but, you know, the high tide lifts all boats and the low tide sinks all boats. And that's why it's so important that we support each other and that we try our best to create an industry with intention and not that greedy self-interest. We were just mentioning a moment ago. and and because it's the greedy self-interest that causes the command and control leadership to happen, that causes people's, the customer and the team to get devalued while investors and shareholders get overvalued. And then you have all these gaps, brand gaps and experience gaps. And now the brand of cannabis is not what it was five or 10 years ago. Five or 10 years ago, if you asked the average American, what is the brand of the cannabis industry? Most people would say, oh, yeah, that's a that's a bunch of people that want to help people and they want to get medicine and healing to people. Well, I bet if you ask those same Americans today, what's your impression of the cannabis industry? Oh, yeah, it's all those guys that just want to make a lot of money. Right. So it's just so important that we that we create an industry with intention. Yeah, certainly. And I'll just add that, you know, to the point on timing, it's and failure or setbacks it's any market is cyclical you know there's you can't the stock can't go up all the time no matter what right there's gonna be days when it goes down and and that's to be expected and and that's okay too in fact it, it's, it's not funny, expected though <laughs> well well you know it's funny it's like i i, I heard a, a research analyst in the in the tech space say like you know, when I get really worried is when the stocks only ever go up because that's not how it's supposed to work. These things are supposed to go down sometimes too. And so I always thought that that was a good perspective to have. Uh, but I want to ask you, Andrew, uh, a question that came to mind because it's one that I get asked a lot and I don't really have great answers because it's not my experience. And so I, I, I want to offer it to you, which is for the folks who are maybe not in California or, or maybe even in California or are in other markets that don't have a robust legal market or just getting started where, you know, for example, I'm in New York where we're just getting adult use off the ground. 
It's, it's in its infancy still. You know, there's a lot of folks that that come to me and say, Mike Z, how do I transition? I'm a legacy operator. I've been in this industry for years. This is what I love. This is what I know. And I just want to do it, uh, you know, in a legal, acceptable way. So I don't have to feel the stigma or shame or the pressure, any of this stuff. And I don't have great answers. I tell them, find a great attorney and find someone who's done it before that can help you. But that's not me. And so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or, or advice to offer those folks. Great question. Well, look, the, the barriers to entry for licensed legal cannabis businesses are really high right now in almost every legal state with the possible except, exception of Oklahoma. <laughs> God bless Oklahoma. Um, the barriers to entry are very low there, but there's also a dispensary on every corner in Oklahoma and there's far too much weed and far too many dispensaries and they sort of have the opposite problem there. Um, so, so you can move to Oklahoma <laughs> and probably get into the industry with just the money you've buried in the ground in the gray and legacy markets. Or you can partner with other people like in New York's gonna, it, you know, it's gonna cost, I don't know, it's probably gonna cost half a million bucks just to get the license in New York. It, or maybe two, 300, depending where you are in the supply chain, but it's going to cost a lot. And so how do you do that? Unless you're one of these legacy people that's buried millions of dollars and very few have. So um, it might be necessary to partner with other legacy people. And as you mentioned, then pool resources and hire either attorneys to do the application work, or I work with a group called Global Go Consulting. Uh, they have a very good track record on winning licenses for folks. And, and then, you know, make sure you hire the right people and that you actually win the license. Um, because it sure is a bummer when you leverage perhaps hundreds of thousands of dollars only to lose in the application process. So, um, if you can't do any of those things, you have to go work for somebody who can for a while, you know, and prove that you know what you're doing, that you know what you're talking about, that you've done this before, you know this plant, you know this product, you know this customer. And the cream always rises to the top when you're talking about people oriented businesses like we've been talking about here. If you're a person who knows it well, you're gonna outperform somebody who maybe came over from Starbucks and knows coffee really well, but doesn't know cannabis really well. They might know retail really well, and that's important too, but you'll bring something to the table that they won't. And you'll work your way up to someday perhaps being a leader in that company, or maybe you have to find, you might have to go work for a few companies before you find one that aligns with your values. But once you do, and they're out there, it can be done. Once you do, you, you'll very quickly rise, rise up the leadership ranks. And it might take a few years, okay? But that's all right. We've all just got all the time in the world until we don't, right? So, um, uh, and, 
And so that's my advice. You know, if you can't get in yourself, if you can't own and operate, work for somebody. And if you can't pool your resources with others so you can own and operate, and that presents its own challenges. It's hard for a group of people to get along well enough together to see it all the way through. But, but hopefully folks can. I've seen it. I've seen it work. Uh, I've also seen family members <laughs> sue each other in this business because they, they couldn't agree on, on what to do with the company or the, or the license or the this or the that. So, so choose your partners well. Choose your investors well. If you can't find investors or partners, go work for somebody and uh, develop, learn the industry, the legal industry. Learn how your skills transfer over. And if you're aware and smart and you're good at observing and listening, you'll be able to find your path up the, up the chain of the leadership chain of that company and, and, and get yourself into a role that excites you and makes you really happy and perhaps puts you next to other leaders that may also harbor dreams of owning and operating their own company. You know, you meant Harborside. Most of the people I mentored at Harborside, and I mentored a few, there was a bunch of people I mentored for years and years and years. In one case, one of my mentees, 12 years, I, I mentored this woman. Well, she owns and operates her own cannabis company now. She's a partner with somebody else I mentored at Harborside. Um, if you look around the industry, there's all these folks working at very high levels of both big and small cannabis companies that used to work at Harborside that Steve or I or our team mentored. So that's a really good model for people to, your listeners to, to think about a little bit, right? It, 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 you, if you really want to do this and you believe you have what it takes and you're stubborn and persistent, you will find your way. You will find your way. I love that. And isn't that one of the greatest feelings in the world to see someone you've mentored in cannabis go on and start or run their own cannabis business? I've, I've found that to be the most rewarding. One of the most rewarding experiences of being in this industry is exactly that. It's our greatest legacy. Um, it's, in my opinion, it's my greatest legacy at Harborside is all the people that I mentored and all the leaders that we gave birth to and that we incubated at Harborside, that there's literally hundreds of them, uh, in some cases, all over the world right now. And they're doing great work and they're doing righteous work. Mm. And you're right. Nothing feels better than that. I mean, the thrill of making a ton of money is one thing, right? But the thrill of mentoring somebody and seeing them become as or if not more successful than you, it's, it's, it's a much deeper and gratifying feeling in the long term than the hit you get for making, you know, a quick buck or maybe not a quick buck, but just a bunch of bucks. <laughs> um, it's, it's a different kind of joy. It's a different kind of um, fulfillment that you have. And yeah, I, I consider it my greatest legacy at Harborside. That's awesome. And I, I just want to 
repeat some of the answers you gave me in that last question because I, I think it's worth kind of uh, I'm all about the repetition because I, I know I have a stoner memory sometimes and so uh, I think it bears repeating a couple of the tips you gave for people that want to transition into the legal market and, and I think these apply across the board whether you're a legacy operator or even you know just a a human trying to get into this industry, I heard uh, three main things. One, and this is, I preach this in the book, you have to think long-term. You have to be in it for the long haul and think in terms of a longer timeline and the bigger picture of this thing. Two, I heard you say, you have to find a great team. You have to find, again, that supporting cast or, or, or join a supporting cast of, of a great leader or great leaders where you can learn and grow and and receive that mentorship and support to achieve greatness in your own respect and then the third thing that i heard was play to your strengths and whatever it is that you bring to the table you know really focus in on that and and do do whatever it is that you do well try to become the best in the world or the best you can be at that thing. And as you become more and more valuable, there'll be more and more opportunities to succeed and to take on bigger opportunities. So I, I think that's pretty sound advice for, for anyone getting into any industry, but especially true in cannabis. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I so. hired and fired thousands of people at my tenure at Harborside. And I can tell you that really talented people who do a good job get noticed very quickly. So let me ask you a quick follow-up there and then we'll wrap up because I do want to be mindful of your time and get you out of here on time. In terms of hiring good people, this is one of the questions I actually get asked a lot as well is how do I find good people? And I think it's extremely tough in any industry and it's especially tough in cannabis. So Given that you have that experience, I, I wonder if you've developed any kind of uh, tools or tips to, to either separate the cream, if you will, or, or, or on the other end to avoid the disasters. Well, I, the first thing I learned the hard way, <laughs> hiring people at Harborside. First, let's just say, when you hire the wrong person, and they're not the right fit and they and you have to let them go it's very painful it's very painful for the organization it's very painful for the team it's very painful for the person reporting to you and it's very painful for the leader to have to go through that process of hiring someone then maybe six months later letting them go because it was wrong so getting it right is really important what, what i learned the hard way was spend more time um, it's, it's like due diligence with investors. You have to do due diligence on people. Some people interview really, really well, but they don't perform so good. Uh, some people perform great. Don't interview so well. Some people have the most amazing resume you've ever seen, but if you don't check it, it might be all smoke and mirrors and not really true. If you don't call people's references, and insist that they give you references. You are making a huge mistake. 
even if the thing's baked in a little bit and yeah, they're going to call their reference and say, make sure you say nice things about, if you know how to talk to a reference or you know how to talk to a past manager and employer, you know, the questions to ask, tell me what is wrong with this person. Tell me what's weak with this person. Tell me where, where their weaknesses are, where are their blind spots? Don't tell me everything that's great. Tell me the biggest fight you got in with them. Tell me about the big disagreement you had. Tell me about a time when they didn't perform to your expectations. Those are the kind of questions you want to ask references. And you want to you want to ask all the good stuff, too. You want to hear all the good stuff. You definitely want to hear the good stuff. Usually that's what the first few minutes of the conversation, maybe 10, 15 minutes. But then eventually you'll see an opening. And you're like, OK, now you told me all the great stuff. Let's talk about some hard stuff. And if they don't have anything to say, hard stuff, it's less than authentic. There is no way. I'm flawed. You, you talk to my brother. What, what does Andrew do well? What he doesn't do well? He'll tell you. You know, he'll be pretty upfront and honest about it. Um, and, 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 and if he wasn't, if he's, oh, my brother's greatest thing since sliced bread and he doesn't, never makes a mistake and he knows how to do all these great things and you couldn't hire anyone better on earth than my brother. If he said that, it's not authentic. It doesn't ring true to an experienced hire. Someone who hires a lot of people like me, it's just not going to ring true. You're just going, ah, that's bullshit. Um, next. <laughs> um, so, so, so don't let people who are BSing you on their resume or with their references or with their past employers, don't let them through the door. Because if they're going to bull bs you on a resume they're going to bs you on did they show up to work on time or bs you on a report or bs you on something else so don't make that mistake don't make the mistake of oh wow great interview hire them no spend more time do your due diligence i i'm i'm i have a client right now that i'm hiring a coo for and we have spent months on this now they don't have their pre-license, and so this particular client's getting way ahead of the, the game. But we have spent months on this. I'm flying down to Mississippi. I'm gonna, we're flying in candidates for the role. I'm gonna put them through a whole rigorous, you know, 36-hour interview. <laughs> and we're gonna go to dinner and we're gonna learn all about them and we're gonna learn about their family and their their background and their education and and we're going to learn, can they have dinner with people? And, and, and are they, do they have a certain amount of emotional intelligence or transactional intelligence or where are their skills or where are their talents and where are their superpowers? And, and that's how you do it. It, it. It's tempting. If someone gives a really good interview and you're in a hurry, I got to fill this role. It's tempting to hire that person right there on the spot. Almost. Take a little more time. Do not follow that impulse. That impulse might be wrong. So that's, that's my, my main advice is, is people really have to spend enough time on this. There is nothing, nothing, no decision you'll make in this cannabis industry that's more important than the team you put together. Nothing, nothing is, is, is more important than that. Some people say, oh, the shareholders are more important than that. No, no, they are not. No, they are not because they get no return on their money if the team's dysfunctional. If the team's functional, they're gonna get a return on their money. 
And people get mad at me when I say, oh, the team's more important than the shareholder. Shareholders get mad at me. They're like, how can you say that? Or my clients will say, how can you say that? But it's really true. And it's the most important decision we make as leaders is the team that we put together. Because if you don't get it right, you're going to be managing your way through it until you do get it right. Amazing. That was brilliant. And I'll just say it what comes to my mind when I hear all that is there are no shortcuts. So don't try to cut the corners, especially with something that is as important as Andrew says, the most important thing, which is the team, those, the people, the human resources. And I happen to agree with you. And Andrew, I just want to thank you so very much for taking the time and for offering your sage business, cannabis business advice and experience and, and, uh, I just want to thank you again for, for taking the time to join me. And I hope that we can meet in person someday and, and uh, enjoy some cannabis together. Me too, Mike. Great conversation. Thank you for your insights too. Really, really helpful. Thank you, man. Have a great day. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. Hi, Mike Z is. The Cannabis Business Coach.